Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for October 2022, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Dennis Duncan about his book, Index, a history of the a bookish adventure from medieval manuscripts to the digital age. It's a New York Times editor's choice book, and it's a playful and fascinating history. Yes, fascinating history of the humble index and its outsized effect on our reading lives. Now, most of us give little thought to the back of a book. It's just where you go to look things up. But as Dennis Duncan reveals in his delightful and witty history, hiding in plain sight is an unlikely realm of ambition and obsession, sparring and politicking, pleasure and play, charting its curious path from the monasteries and universities of 13th century Europe to the present day in the 21st century, Duncan uncovers how it has saved heretics from the stake, kept politicians from high office, and made us all into the readers we are today. I began my interview with Dennis Duncan by asking him, how on earth was he ever inspired to write a book about the index? It came about because I needed a book about indexes. I, I, my background is I work on uh, or I used to work on French, 20th century French literature, an avant-garde group from the second half of the 20th century called the Oulipone. Um, and they take ideas from mathematics and see whether you can create new literary forms by, by using mathematical ideas. Um, famous, one famous novel is, is uh, by Georges Perec. In English, it's called Life, a User's Manual. It's a masterpiece. It's up there with Ulysses as one of the great novels of the 20th century. It's got an index. It's got two indexes, actually. And I thought, well, that's, that's an interesting thing. And then an American member of this group, a chap called Harry Matthews, who settled in Paris in the 70s, he also has a novel called The Sinking of the Odredeck Stadium that has an index. And Italo Calvino, a very famous Italian member of this group, his final novel, Mr. Palomar, has a table of contents. So I was thinking about this group and why is it that their sort of mathematical approach to literature produces novels with index because we know novels shouldn't have indexes and i thought i might write an academic article about this but i need to to look up some things on when did novels stop having indexes and so on so so what's the what's the standard history of the index <laughs> and i asked my colleagues and i asked around for, for a month or so nobody could tell me everyone said oh well there's a book about the footnote and and so on and finally it dawned on me i had this kind of naive uh sense that that all of the important reference books had been written and I only had to, to find find out where it was um, but no there wasn't one so uh, so I thought well I better do that for for the benefit of others who come later I'm going to write the history of the book index but I do like I, it, it makes me smile the fact that this sort of bibliographic thing history of the, the book index grew out of thinking about avant-garde French literature Fascinating, fascinating. So, so what did your, where did your research take you? Where did, where are the first indexes? Uh, where, when, and where? I mean, how far back does does this go? Physically, my research took me um, to a few places. It turned out that there were some institutions that were quite interested in me finding this out. So, the University of Oxford gave me a place, uh, an office in the Bodleian Library there for three years, simply to to research this, and then I got an office in the. Cambridge Library. I came to Washington on a fellowship to uh, the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. So there were quite a few institutions that were sort of generous and, and, and curious about this research. So it took me physically around certain of the major libraries uh, and archives. Um, where I ended up 
temporally um, was initially in the 13th century, initially at the, the, um, the start of the 1200s, um, where the need for the book index had arisen. So the book index gets invented twice, once in Paris and once in Oxford, um, round about the year 1230. Um, so it's one of those inventions that, that two people simultaneously, independent of each other, have the idea for. You know, sometimes hmm. you find that the moment is so ripe for an invention that, that two people have the idea. So round about the start of the 1200s, um, people needed to start using books in a more efficient way. Previously, readers were monks who have all of their lives in their monasteries to do nothing but read the Bible very slowly, meditate on it, and they can do a slow, linear read through the Bible. But certain bureaucratic pressures, things like teaching in the university, universities have just been invented around the start of the 13th century, things like preaching, the orders of preachers, the Franciscans and the Dominicans had just arisen at the start of the 13th century. So these new institutions mean that people need to prepare types of speech, the lecture and the sermon, essentially. And in order to write lectures, I mean, I know this from, from my job as a lecturer, you need to use books. You can't read everything from start to finish because you've got that lecture to give on Wednesday morning. And reading takes time. I mean, there's no way around this. Yeah. Reading is an investment of time. And if you want to read broadly, either you need a lot of time or you need to be able to um, to choose which parts of a large text you're going to use. So the, the, the index is a way of morselizing, of breaking up large books, finding, ah, that's the bit that I want. Even in a book that you know, um, like the Bible, still, where was that thing about bread yeah. and loaves? Um, so it comes about from, from this need in the 13th century to start reading more economically, to start that the relationship between time and knowledge has become compressed, if you like, people need to be more efficient in the way that they access knowledge. And so books needed to be numbered, right? So, the, for an, so that an index could refer to a page number. So did the, the, the numbering of pages and indexing, they, they started pretty much at the same time? No, not really. I mean, no? the trouble with page numbers is that they only really work in printed books, if, in manuscripts. So for, for the first couple of hundred years of the index, the, the 1200s and the 1300s, this is before... Gutenberg invents the printing press. Which was um, when? When was the printing press invented? The 1450s, the 1450s in Germany. Up until then, every book was written out by hand. If there are 100 copies of a book in circulation, that means 100 people actually wrote the whole book out. If you want a copy of that book, you commission somebody to copy it, literally. So manuscript etymologically means hand writing. Right. The thing yeah. is when people copy out books, they make very sure to get all the words right, but they don't bother to keep the pagination exactly the same. You might run over the page. You might be copying from a really big book that has a lot of text on the page into a really small book. So you end up with more pages, but with the same text. So the page number, which we think of as, as the, the way that indexes work, the way that footnotes work, really only becomes useful after printing. So the first printed page number is on a little sermon printed in Cologne in 1470. And it's, oh, it's a mind-blowing invention. I was in the, the Bodleian in, in Oxford um, with this little sermon from 1470 on my desk. And it's a very unassuming book. There are um, superstar books. There's the Gutenberg Bible. There's Shakespeare's first folio. These, these are the sort of A-list celebs of the book world. And if you won't go into any library and say, can I look at your Shakespeare first folio, they will march you out of the corridor and back out into the street because no, 
you can't. It's under glass. You may, maybe you could look at it in the museum, but you can't have it in your desk. But this little sermon I just had out. I ordered it. They brought it to my desk. It's sitting there next to my pencil and my, you know, if I wanted to deface it, if I was a vandal, <laughs> I could. It's just sitting there next to my laptop. But this is the book that has the first printed page number. So every footnote you see, every reference you see, every time you're in a book group and somebody says, oh, should we turn to the thing on page 67 that we all enjoyed? All of that makes no sense except because of this funny little sermon from, from Cologne in 1470. Oh, that's wild. Wild. Yeah. And then what, what about letters, the, the alphabet? When, when did, obviously that is so essential too. You look at an index, A, A through Z. When, when did uh, when did that become common, the, our, our language that we use, uh, you know, which is all essential for indexes too. And you you got to talk about this too, Dennis. And this was fascinating because as a morning host, I'm barely, I get up at four in the morning. I barely know my name, but I've got to get to work. I've got my wallet in my right front pocket, my keys there, my coin purse, my chapstick and my phone. And they're always in the same place. I never change that. And that's, you said, is a kind of index in that's your book. A mental index that, that you put things in the same place so that you always know where they are. Then imagine something slightly bigger. So imagine your kitchen and you have the spoons go there, the knives go there, the flour goes there, the sugar goes there and stuff. So maybe a hundred things that have their own place in the kitchen. But the thing about the kitchen is it's a shared space. So other people know the same ordering. So this, the way that things are, you could write it out. You could say, uh, um, knives go second draw down on the right. So you yeah. could have a, a sort of list of where everything goes. And you might want to put that list in alphabetical order so people could look up where are the knives, look down to K over there. We're starting to move into um, what a, an index is, not just a mental index where we, we, we know it all, but, but if we sort of write this out, this becomes a, a way of, if you know the word for something, it can tell you the place for something. And that's really how the the use of alphabetical order started. So we're going back to a really big data problem in Alexandria, about 300 BC, the Library of Alexandria, the great library of the classical world, has several hundred thousand books in it. Now, they don't look like books, they're scrolls, but still several hundred, hundred thousand works on scrolls. That's too big. You, you, you know, you talk about your phone and your chapstick and your wallet and so it's <laughs> too big for anybody to know in their mind. So you have a problem of um, knowledge, but it's also chaos. How do we bring order? How do we map this, um, this thing that's too big for people to sort of memorize? And the librarian, a man called Callimachus, thinks, well, everybody in this library knows how to read Greek. That's the point. You come to the library. Um, and in order to learn how to read Greek, you must have learned the alphabet. And the way that we learn the alphabet, we learn it as a sequence. There's no reason why A comes before B or alphabet comes before beta, but it's handy for learning things. So we learn that letters have an order. He goes, well, if I put the books in, in a kind of order by the writer, by the name of, of, of the writer, then if you know the author that you're looking for, then a table can tell you, well, it's over there, you know, second floor up, fourth shelf on the right or whatever. So again, it's taking that thing of what do we all know? What's universal here? Um, well, we all know the letters of the alphabet. What don't we know are our route through the chaos. So as long as you know the one thing that we do know, 
it can tell you how to navigate the chaos. Now, there is a problem with this, which is, or, or some people had a problem, theologians had a problem with this in the Middle Ages, which is that we like to believe that there is order in the universe. We like to believe that, or, or the middle, theologians in the Middle Ages like to believe that God had created an ordered universe, and our job was to discern that order, to decipher it, to understand his creation. If you say, well, I'm going to give up on that. I'm just going to put everything in alphabetical order, which is arbitrary. What's the word? What's the first letter of the word? It feels like you're abdicating your responsibility of, of trying to decode the divine order, hmm. but it is very handy. So there is a this sort of resistance in, in uh, between the sort of 10th and the 13th century against alphabetical order in the Middle Ages, because it feels like it's applying arbitrariness to, to God's great creation. Um, oh. It's incredibly useful. Fascinating, fascinating. Early in the book, you write about uh, an art exhibition. I think it was what nineteen seventeen, and this was uh, one that uh, that was, uh, I believe, curated by an artist that I'm a big, big fan of. In fact, I'm getting another uh, book about him soon, uh, Marcel Duchamp. Um, I want to hear about this, 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 what you write about in the book about this art exhibit, which was put together, yeah, al just alphabetically by by each artist. Is that right? <laughs> And what, what what was your point in putting this in the book? Duchamp is such uh, such a fascinating sort of figure, isn't he? Both as an artist yeah. and an intellectual. He's just arrived in New York. He's he, he's left France, which is at war. He's come to the States. Um, in France, he was exhibiting at the the Salon des Independents, the Independence Show, and he decides to set up the same same thing in New York. Anyone can exhibit. It's uh, um, to sort of break down the sort of hierarchies of the art world, where it's about who you know or, or where you've been trained. Anyone can exhibit. Um, you'll get a space. I think you might have to pay a little fee, um, but it's independent in that respect. And Duchamp says, what we're going to do is we're going to hang the pictures in alphabetical order to totally break away from that thing of like belonging to schools or being better than everyone. The alphabet is the, the sort of democratizing force here, the great leveler. The leveler, um, yeah. So maybe, maybe it's better if, you're, if your surname is, is Anderson than, than <laughs> or something. But, um, but anyway, it seems like a really funny way of hanging an exhibition. You know when you go to an exhibition um, and it's curated and you walk into one room and that's telling you some part of the story, maybe it's chronological or something, um, but to totally make that arbitrary seems like, a, again, this possibly an abdication of, well, hang on, I want my art to tell me something about its creation. It's yeah. a really, uh, I suppose I find myself in two minds about, well, on the one hand, it's a democratizing thing. On the other hand, if I go to an exhibition, I want a curator to put some uh, thought into the organization. But it's a, it, it's a nice idea, isn't it? The, the art exhibition that's hung purely by arbitrariness, applying something from the universe, like using the I Ching or something to- it, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, figures something that Duchamp would do something, you know, cerebral that that, yeah, that exactly. cerebral that makes you. Think. They started hanging the exhibition. A lovely lady called Beatrice Wood had, had uh, been hanging the exhibition. Then she says, and suddenly we'd get a new submission by Smith, and everything after S in the alphabet has to be shifted, <laughs> moved down, <laughs> space for the new one. Uh, and Dennis, one of the many things in your book that I'd never thought about before was who actually puts together indexes in, in books. I, I guess I never thought about it. I was thinking, <laughs> well, gosh, the author must do. Now, of course, the author of a book wouldn't have to. All right. You've got to make the index for your book. But who does that? I mean, who does that in general for, for, for books? Who Who's responsible for compiling indexes? Well, uh, if you're 
um, if you're serious about it, you should get an indexer to do it, a professional indexer. In my country, they're a member of the Society of Indexers. In, in America, it's the American Society for Indexing. Um, and these are professional indexers, and they're expert readers. They will take your book apart, think about what you're trying to say and how readers will want to use it. So will they come back and think about this detail or that detail? What are the salient aspects of the book? Um, so yeah, many authors do index their own books, but I think it's a better idea to get an expert to do it. And you've got two indexes in your book. <laughs> yeah. right. So the, the trouble is, like like so many professions, computers are coming for all of our jobs these yep. days, and there is software to prepare book indexes. And what I wanted to show is, is that at the moment, the state of the art in 2022 is indexing software isn't very good. Um, so I did, ran my book through some indexing software and I printed the results as an appendix to the book just to show, look, this is kind of funny. I mean, it's, it's, it's not as terrible as you think. One of the people who invented the, the index in, uh, in Paris in 1230 was a man called Hugh of Saint-Cher, a little village in the south of France called Saint-Cher at Saint-C-H-E-R. And in the computer index, it had an entry, it had loads of entries for sure. C-H-E-R, as in, you know, Sonny and Sher, do you believe in life after love? And I was thinking, I don't think she's in this, but it's <laughs> telling me that chapters one and two have got a lot of share in them. And the human index is never going to confuse Hugh of Sonny Cher with... It's uh, <laughs> 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 not in the book. Um, so that's the kind of thing where I kind of, I wanted to show the uh, um, human indexes are still... Um, are still better, uh, are still able to do things, um, to understand things that, that uh, the current state of, of the art can't in, in indexing software. Mm. One or two more real quick questions, Dennis. I'll let you go. And all of the research that, that you did for this incredible book, what, what were just one or two things you ran across that just, you know, left you, uh, as they say in Britain, gobsmacked, you know, that like I had no idea that that happened or that this was part of why we have indexes. Like, What were some of the most surprising discoveries in your research? One of the big ones was early on, which was that Google call their process crawling and indexing. Google say that Google is an index. Um, it does two things. It crawls the web 24 seven in the background. It goes and visits every web page and then it puts the results into a series of indexes, tables. And so when you search Google, it doesn't search the web. What you're doing is searching Google's index of the web. So this idea that the thing that we do all the time, we sit on the sofa looking things up, this really is the age of search is um, using an index. So uh, uh, the, this technology that was invented in the medieval period is the technology that underpins the age of search, if you like. You know, every time you look up a restaurant or, you know, look up an actress or a footballer on Google, you're using the technology that Hugh of Saint-Cher invented in, in 1230. So that blew my mind. One of the other things, I suppose, was... Um, well, a few of the funny old books that I found, I was telling you earlier about the difference between um, in the medieval period, in the manuscript period, um, two people have the same text, but in different size volumes, page numbers don't work. So I was in a, a library in Cambridge looking at a history book and the book had been written, copied out in the 1380s. It, it was a book from the 1350s, but the copy I was looking at had been copied about 30 years later. 
And at the end, the scribe who'd copied it had signed it. They often do. It said this book was copied out by John Lutton, monk called John Lutton. Um, because it takes them months to do it. They're very proud of it at the end. Yeah. Copy the index. So then he goes back and he starts copying out the index. And John Lutton in the 1380s doesn't know how indexes work. So he copies out all the entries and he copies out all of the page numbers. But he's been copying from one size book into another. So this index from the 1380s doesn't work. You look up something and you turn to that page and then you go, oh, it's not here. And you turn back a few pages and you go, oh, there it is. Um, so it's just like if you... If you go on a web page and, and, and every link on the web page takes you to 404, page not found, that's exactly what we have in this medieval manuscript, a whole index full of sort of broken links because, uh, because of this thing that the page number makes such a massive transformation to the shareability of, of book information. Yeah, inaccurate indexes are not a good thing, are they? <laughs> not a good thing at all. <laughs> and can we finish with your your story about the uh, Norman Mailer and William F. Buckley? That was that was hilarious too. That their yeah. rivalry that you mentioned in the book, and we'll end it there. This is the thing that most people that the, the story that I heard the most when I said I'm writing a history of the index, people go, Ah, well, have you heard the one about William F. Buckley and Norman Mailer? It's 1966. William F. Buckley, uh, a right wing intellectual. Um, runs in the campaign to be mayor of New York. He doesn't have any expectation of, expectation of winning, really. It's a bit of a publicity stunt, um, and he loses. But then he writes a book about it called The Unmaking of a Mayor, and he has this sort of difficult relationship with one of the other sort of major intellectuals of the period, Norman Mailer, um, and he writes to Norman Mailer and says, can I publish some of the letters between us in this book? And Mailer says, no, you can't. <laughs> and so Buckley mentions this in the book, he says, and Norman wouldn't let me use those letters. Um, but when the book comes out, um, as we do, I suppose, when we, we, we quote our friends of these things in books, he sends a copy to Norman Mailer. But in the index at the back of the book, um, under Mailer, Norman, page 321, in a red ballpoint pen, he's written, hi, exclamation mark, because he knows that the first thing that Norman Mailer is going to do is go, oh, I wonder if I'm in this. And that... <laughs> Little act of narcissism, checking your own name in the index. Buckley wants to go, I see you. I, I, I've caught you in the act. <laughs> One of the things that, that when this book came out, in order to, the, that book still exists. It's in a, an archive in, in Texas um, where with the rest of Mailer's books. And the, the library very kindly let me use a photograph of it in the book. Um, but because it contains one word of Buckley's handwriting, it counts as a William F. Buckley manuscript. And so in order to reproduce it, I also had to get clearance from William F. Buckley's estate um, from his son. So I wrote to Christopher Buckley and said, could I use this one word manuscript of your father's? And he wrote back very kindly and he said, yeah, you can. Um, but could you send me a copy of the book when it comes out? And so when the book got printed, I got my publisher to go to the index at the back before they sent it to him. And in a red ballpoint pen, write, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for October 22. Our interview was with Dennis Duncan about his book, Index, A History of the, A Bookish Adventure from Medieval Manuscripts to the digital age. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.